warrior. When I think about being a, the idea of a prayer warrior, I think about my grandmother Ross. We called her Momo, and she was a, a woman of prayer. Uh, prayer was the first thing she did when she woke up. Prayer was the last thing she did before she went to bed, and prayer was something she did at various times throughout her day. When you asked Momo to pray for you, you knew she would. She prayed regularly, she prayed passionately, and she prayed powerfully. Not long after she passed away, we were cleaning out her things, and my dad found a plastic box and in it was like a, a military-type dog tag that said Prayer Warrior on it. In fact, it's, it's this one right here. I keep it. I have it in my office. Uh, she was indeed a prayer warrior. Now, obviously, the idea that the phrase Prayer Warrior is not in God's Word. We don't find that phrase used there. But it's a, a commonly used term referring to a disciple of Jesus who prays continually, passionately, aggressively, and powerfully for themselves and others, primarily for others. Prayer warriors understand prayer is the primary way they engage in spiritual warfare. A prayer warrior uh, intercedes for others and they kind of see it as they are fighting for the souls of the people around them. Prayer warriors love God. Prayer warriors love people. Prayer warriors love the church and therefore they pray. And again, they pray continually, passionately, aggressively and powerfully. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to be a prayer warrior. Every disciple of Jesus is meant to pray continually, passionately, aggressively, and powerfully for themselves and for others. So tonight what I want to do is give us four actions to take so we can be prayer warriors. Number one is realize we're in a spiritual war with spiritual enemies. Now as disciples of Jesus, we always have to realize we are engaged in a spiritual war. This war has raged since our first parents were in the Garden of Eden. This war affects every area of our lives and everyone we know. There is no way we can avoid the war uh, we have been, we are a part of. There is no foxhole, there is no bunker, there is no neutral country where we can retreat to and not be involved in the war. The unseen spiritual war is raging all around us. No matter who we are, no matter where we are in our spiritual life or what we believe, there is a spiritual war raging for the souls of people and we are a part of it. This is a real war with real enemies. Our enemies are primarily three. The world. The world is the morally and spiritually corrupt system which is opposed to God and His reign. I think of the world as the culture around us. The culture around us would include things like pop culture, music, movies, TV, books, magazines, uh, politics, the news media, all of these things. It would also just generally include the, the attitude of the people, the world around us. The world, the flesh. The flesh refers to our capacity and disposition to put everything uh, even God underneath self, right? So the, the capacity we all have to say, I am the number one, I am most important than anything else, it is the flesh. It is our internal wiring leading us to resist God's leading and rebel against His reign in our life. According to God's Word, it rules our lives prior to coming to Jesus and being saved. After we are saved, We deal with the flesh from that moment on. The flesh lusts and fights against the spirit for control of our lives. It is always going on. And then, of course, the devil. Satan is a real being. He's not just a 
evil in general. He's not just an evil influence, not the personification of all the evil in the world. He is a real being of absolute evil who hates and opposes anything and everything that has to do with God. These three enemies work together to oppose, attack and destroy all who are made in the image of God and all who have been redeemed by the Son of God. And they do work together. But internally, our flesh works against us and against God's plans for our lives, resisting what God would have us to do. Externally, the world seeks to arouse our flesh into action. It, the world opposes God in such a way the flesh thinks what the world is promoting is better than what God offers us or what God has said is right. The world will paint whatever picture is necessary to arouse the flesh to depart from God's design and God's plan. And then Satan is ultimately the one who controls the world. He is the God of this world is what the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4. Now, when we think about the God of this world, Satan is not the God of the, the rocks and the mountains, the plains and the seas. Those things all declare the glory of God and show his handiwork according to Psalm 19. And one, what Satan is the God of is the culture promoting values and ideas contrary to God, his word and his son. Right? Satan is the God of a culture which demands we accept all religions as equal in the name of tolerance. Satan is the, the God of this culture which demands not only do we accept all religions as equal, but then ensures that we understand some religions are less than equal. They can be mocked while other religions Cannot be mocked. Satan is the god of the culture where eagle eggs are considered to be sacred and must be protected at all costs. But an unborn child is just a fetus, a clump of cells, which can be destroyed at any time. Satan is the god of a culture encouraging young people to rebel against their parents and despise their parents. Satan is the god of a culture which rejects and opposes God's design for life, marriage, sexuality, family, and anything else that is contrary to God's word. Satan is the god of that culture. Right? So we realize if we're going to be prayer warriors, we have to realize we are in a spiritual war with very real but spiritual enemies. Secondly, we have to be aware of Satan's schemes. Since Satan is the God of this world and is doing all he can to bring about his will, we must learn to oppose him in prayer. Now, thankfully, God's word tells us much about Satan, about how he works and what his goals are. His ultimate goal is given to us by Jesus. Satan comes to steal, kill and destroy Peter echoes this idea by comparing Satan to a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. Satan wants to destroy. And that is true for all of us. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to destroy me. Well, if Satan can't destroy you or I, then what he wants to do is then he'll try to destroy our marriage. Well, if he can't destroy our marriage and he wants to destroy our children or our grandchildren. Well, if he can't destroy us or our marriage or our children or grandchildren, he'll want to destroy our church. And if he can't destroy our church, then he'll try to destroy our love for the church. And if he can't destroy our love for the church, then he'll work in our children and our grandchildren to try to destroy their love for the church. Right? Satan's one overall goal is to bring destruction in one form or another into every human life. And we know he does these things. We've read about it in God's word. But not, all, not only do we read about it in God's word, we, we see it. 
right? The culture around us, the news cycle around us, just even people we know in Gaiman testify Satan is alive, he is at work, and he is destroying people's lives all of the time all the time. So Satan has these schemes, these wiles, these plans that he does to attack and destroy. Because Satan doesn't typically like overtly physically attack. That's not the common way he attacks. Instead, he has his thoughts. He has his plans. He has his strategies. And within the strategies, there are, I think, four categories of what he does. One is deception. Jesus calls Satan the father of lies, John 8, 44. Revelation 12, 9, we're, co- we're told he deceives the whole world. And in 2 Corinthians 11 and 3, Paul, had been, Paul was afraid Satan through craftiness had corrupted the disciples in Corinth's minds and turned them from Jesus. Satan is a deceiver. He likes to deceive so he can destroy. One of the greatest examples of Satan's deception, I think, is found... In, in Joshua chapter 9 with the Gibeonites. Now, if you're familiar with the passage, what happened is the Israelites have gone into the land and God has forbidden them from making any treaties with the people of the land. Well, the people of Gibeah, they, they kind of have an idea this is probably the case. They're afraid of Israel because they're coming and they're going to destroy them. So they come up with a plan. They pick some messengers, they have them dress in ratty clothes, they give them moldy provisions, and they give them kind of old and worn out equipment. And they send them to the Israelites and say, make a treaty with us. First, Joshua and the Israelite leaders are hesitant. They say, we can't, not supposed to make a treaty with anybody in the land. You might be somebody from the land we don't know yet. And so the Gibeonites said, no, look at us. Our clothes were brand new when we left home. This bread was fresh out of the oven. Now look how moldy it is. These wineskins were brand new. Now look, they're cracked and they're broken. We have traveled a long way. And so they made an agreement. And the Bible specifically says they did not seek the Lord. They didn't pray. They didn't cry out to God and say, God, should we or shouldn't we? Instead, what they did was they trusted their own eyes. They listened to the Gibeonites and trusted their natural senses and did not seek the Lord. So a Gibeonite is one who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will while appealing to natural senses and discouraging them from seeking God or his word for guidance. So a Gibeonite, someone who encourages someone to do something contrary to God's will or God's word, they do this by appealing to the natural senses and discouraging them from seeking God or His Word for guidance. Deception is a key aspect of what the Gibeonites do. So who is it that encourages kids to get drunk, sleep around, send naked selfies, do drugs, and rebel against their parents? Gibeonites do. Who encourages husbands or wives to have an affair? Gibeonites do. Who encourages someone to be open to other religions and all forms of non-Christ-centered spirituality? Gibeonites do. Who does these things to lead people astray? Who are the people who are working in other people's lives to lead them away from God? They're Gibeonites. But make no mistake, Satan is the power behind the Gibeonite. Deception, temptation. 
Satan tried to tempt Jesus to sin. Uh, and when Satan tempts us to sin, I think he uses four basic lies. One is it's, it's no big deal. Now, why it's no big deal could vary. It's no big deal because it's not as bad as what someone else is doing. It's no big deal because the world is different than it used to be. But either way, what Satan wants to convince a person being tempted is this temptation, this sin is no big deal. He'll also convince them no one will ever know. No one will ever find out what you've done. You're you're doing this under the cover of darkness. You're doing this this way. No one will ever see it. Or maybe you deserve this. You're special. You've had a hard day. You deserve this, whatever it is. Or it'll be you don't have a choice. This is just who you are. You have no choice but to live in this sin. And these lies are all part of Satan's schemes to destroy humanity. First Thessalonians 3 and 5, Paul was concerned the tempter had tempted the Thessalonian believers to turn from the faith. Now, the reason I use that one is because it's kind of fascinating. He hadn't tempted them into sin. That's not what he was afraid of. That's not how the tempter had turned them away from Christ. Instead, what had happened was they were suffering. Their lives had become difficult primarily because of their their faith and their devotion to Jesus. And in that moment, it seems there was a, a temptation for them to turn away from Christ, to go back to the old way of life, to hide from the persecution. And according to what the Apostle Paul says, this was the temptation of the devil seeking to destroy them. I think we could say anytime someone goes through a hard trial and in that moment, there's, there's, I think there will be a temptation to turn away. What, what's the point? Why should I continue to serve God when I've prayed for this to go away and it didn't? Why should I continue to serve God when I, you know, I, I've been good and this has happened? Those thoughts, those thoughts are the lies of the tempter. And a person who, who gives in to that and turns away from Jesus in that moment because of those thoughts has, has given in to the temptations of the devil. And it is so that he can destroy them. Satan also uses separation. First Thessalonians 2, 17 and 18. Paul had a great desire to go back to Thessalonica to encourage and strengthen the brothers and sisters there. But, and he had tried to go back, but it specifically says Satan had hindered him. And it's an interesting word. The word hindered that's used is interesting because it, it almost pictures like he's walking down the road and Satan had dug a hole in the road so big he couldn't, back, he couldn't get across it. Satan had put a block in his way that kept him from doing it. Galatians 4 and 16, the Galatian disciples were being led away from Jesus by false teachers. Paul had written to them telling them these teachers were false and they needed to turn back to Jesus. And the people had sort of turned on Paul. And so Paul asked them in this verse if he had become their enemy by telling them the truth. The, the Corinthian issue is very similar. Um, they have been listening to false teachers. They've been given to, to great sin themselves. Paul writes a letter encouraging them to turn back. And, and here he's in those verses, he's encouraging them to open their hearts to him. And what had happened was they had closed their hearts to Paul. They didn't want Paul, anything to do with Paul anymore. They closed their hearts to him because they didn't like what he was saying. So in both Galatians, 2 Corinthians, Paul speaks of Satan being behind false teachers. And, and, and through that, Satan causing separation between Paul 
in these churches. But what Satan did then in causing separation, Satan does now to cause separation. Satan actively works to keep people from the fellowship of the saints. That the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. The church is loved by Jesus as a, as a husband loves his wife, is what the Bible says. The church is Jesus's, is God's idea. Therefore, who keeps people, particularly born-again disciples of Jesus, who keeps them from the church? Is it God the Father who planned the church? Not likely. Is it God the Son who died for the church? Well, that seems unlikely. Is it God the Holy Spirit who, who formed the churches? He was poured out upon the believers. No. So who keeps people from church? Well, clearly, Satan does. At the same time, not only does Satan want to keep people from church, but he wants to keep them from people who will tell them the truth. Mark it down. You find of somebody that you're trying to reach for Jesus or somebody that's sliding away from Jesus and you're trying to draw them back. You begin to talk to them. You begin to share with them. You begin to try to reach them and pull them back to Christ. And something will come up. Some sort of offense will happen in their hearts, in their lives to want to push them away from you. Well, where does that come from? Who is trying to keep them from the person trying to bring them to Jesus? Again, clearly not God the Father, clearly not God the Son, clearly not God the Holy Spirit. It's the devil. The devil will use whatever means he can to take the person we're trying to encourage to come to Jesus and turn them and separate them from us because he does not want them to hear the truth of God's word from our lips. He wants them to continue to believe his lies. And so also Satan uses condemnation. He is the accuser of the brethren who accuses God, who accuses us day and night before God. But Satan not only accuses us to God, but he accuses us to us. Satan will accuse us to us, often in the form of reminding us of past failures. You did this. How can you go to church? You did this. How can you share the gospel? You did this. Who are you to try to say you have any sort of spiritual gift? You did this. Why would you think God wants you because of what you've done? Where, where does that accusing voice that we often hear come from? That condemning voice. Well, it's not, again, not God. It's not Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the enemy. Or maybe he'll accuse us of, of things we have done, and I don't know about you, but I've even had times where I felt accused of things I didn't do. I remember a few months ago, I woke up one day and I just felt condemned. Like I was, I was worthless for the kingdom. I, I probably wasn't even saved because, and I got to think, I'm, I'm not, man, I'm, I'm horrible. I mean, I did, and I got to thinking, there was nothing. I mean, not that I'm perfect, and it was like this day of sinlessness on the day before, but there wasn't a particular sin I was being, I felt this about it. It was just a general sense of you're useless, you're worthless. Well, where did that come from? Well, again, it wasn't God. It was the enemy. He, he tries to convince people they're worthless. They should die. Jesus has no use for them and he won't forgive them. Satan attacks through condemnation and he makes people feel condemned. Despite the salvation they have through Christ and the fact there is no condemnation for them 
in Christ. And these are just a few of the ways we see in God's word where Satan attacks. Some of the ways he he uses his schemes to destroy in people's lives. Satan is, is real. He is actively at work in our world. And he wants to do these things to to people in far off lands so that they won't listen to missionaries. He wants to do them to missionaries in far off land. But make no mistake, Satan wants to do them here in our midst. He wants to do them in our lives and with the people in our community and people we love. We cannot afford to be naive about Satan's schemes to destroy. We cannot be naive at how effective he is at destroying with these schemes. We see it all around us. We must be aware of Satan's schemes so we can be alert and pray against them in our life or in the lives of others. So we realize we're in a spiritual war with spiritual enemies. Be aware of Satan's schemes. Thirdly, pray aggressively. Most of us probably don't know how to pray warfare type prayers. We haven't been taught to wage war in prayer. So we end up praying and saying something along the lines of God, God help. God help. God do something. Which, which is better than nothing. I, I'm not saying that's wrong. But doesn't it feel insufficient sometimes? Wouldn't you like to be more aggressive in your prayers for those you love, who you can tell are being destroyed and deceived by the enemy? When I think about the spiritual war being waged against people I know, people I care about, I feel angry and I feel aggressive. And I want the way I wage my spiritual warfare and prayer to reflect this. So there's two ways I think we can do this. One is to pick a passage and to pray it over or for or about the situation or the person. When looking to pick a passage, try to be specific about what's going on in their life. And then choose a passage to study. And let the passage diagnose the problem in their life. Let the passage then reveal what is needed in their situation and let the passage show you how to pray. Now, I didn't give you examples on here, but let me show you a couple of passages to do this. Right. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage battle according to the flesh for the weapons of our warfare, not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying arguments and all arrogance raised against the knowledge of God and we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So someone believe something contrary to God's word, and, and this thing they believe that's contrary to God's word is keeping them from God. could be anything. Gosh, the number of issues that could fall into that be enormous. So we look at this, which talks about specifically about things in the mind. So we look at this. We know they believe things that are wrong. They're keeping it from God. So what's the diagnosis based upon this passage? Well, they have erected fortresses, or most translations will say strongholds in their minds. They have embraced these arguments and exalted them against the knowledge of God. So, so what a, a stronghold is in this case, it is something they use to keep them from having to acknowledge there is a God who has a claim on their life. And they've elevated. There's God saying, I'm real, I'm here. You, you, you need to come to Jesus. They've elevated this one. Oh, that can't be God. No, there can't be God. They've, they've lifted up some sort of an argument to block God from getting into their mind. That's the diagnosis. That's what's going on. Every person who believes something 
contrary to God's revealed word, that is keeping them from surrendering to Jesus Christ, has a stronghold in their mind. And they have done this, they have elevated, or elevated these arguments and raised them up against to protect them against knowing who God is and what God's like. So what's the need? Well, from this passage, the need is for the fortress to be smashed. The need is for them to know the truth that sets them free. The need is for their thoughts to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. So how do we pray for someone who believes things like this from this passage? Well, we pray that we would try that we would be sure to fight with spiritual weapons, right? Because we don't we wage in the flesh in this life, but we don't use fleshly, earthly weapons. We use spiritual weapons. We pray, God, help me. And here's what I think with me. One way for me. If I'm talking to someone and they have believed something that has kept them pushing them out. If I'm not careful, I want to be the Holy Spirit. It's a stupid thing to believe. You can't really believe that. My gosh, that's moronic. You're going to go to hell over something as stupid as that. Well, that's a fleshly way to argue. But it's not going to win them to Christ. It's not going to smash the stronghold. In fact, it's going to elevate it further. It's going to reinforce it. So we pray, Lord, help me when I deal with them and I fight this not to use the fleshly weapons that I would typically like to use. We pray God would make them, maybe God would make them question their doubts or their beliefs. Right? So, so most people, even people who would claim to be an atheist, they believe in something. They have some sort of belief system. Well, why do they believe this but not this? Why do they believe this is true, but not believe God's word is true? Pray for God to begin to stir in them to ask these questions. Or if they have doubts. You know, it's okay to have doubts, but people ought to doubt their doubts from time to time. So pray God would make them doubt their doubts. What, what if I'm wrong? What if there is only one way? What if Jesus really did die? What would that mean for me? Pray God would begin to work that. Pray God would bring his truth to bear on the lies they believe. Maybe we know what lies specifically they believe. So we pray for God to take a truth that counters that lie and just press it on them. Or, or pray that their, their worldview, again, their, this stronghold, these arguments they believe, they're raised up against God. Pray that worldview would collapse. Pray something significant would happen in their lives that would cause that worldview to collapse and they would see this is not a firm foundation to build our life upon. So we take, we pray the word. We, we look at this, we study them, we study the word and we come across, here's the diagnosis, here's the need and we begin to pray the way it teaches us. One more, we have someone, maybe someone's living in a sinful lifestyle. Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowingly produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that may come to their senses, escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So what is, they're living in sin, what is the diagnosis from this passage? Well, one, they're in opposition to God. Right? Secondly, they've lost their senses. Right? What that means is they, they don't know what's right and wrong anymore. They're, they're disoriented. They're discombobulated spiritually. They've been snared by Satan. Isn't that what it says? They've been taken in the snare of the devil. 
And they've been taken captive to do His will. So anyone we know who is living a sinful life in rebellion against God's will and God's word, this is true of them. They are at this moment in opposition to God. They are at this moment, they have lost their senses. They have been snared by the devil and they are actively doing his will. That's true. So what's the need? Well, they need someone to to gently, patiently teach and correct them. They need to come to their senses. They need to repent. They need to escape Satan's snare. So how do we pray for them in light of this? Well, we pray not to get caught up in foolish arguments with them, right? Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations. They produce quarrels. They don't help. So like, let's say I've got someone in my life that's off in sin and I'm trying to reach them for Christ. I'm going to have to prioritize what things I'm going to fight about, right? If I'm going to argue with them, their soul hangs in the balance because they're taken captive by the devil. I can't argue all over the silly little things that the world wants us to argue about on. If they try to provoke me to an argument, I'm going to have to let some things go because that argument I'm going to have is just foolish and ignorant and it's going to produce a quarrel that will not save them. So I'm going to have to pray to not get caught up in those. I'm going to have to not pray to not quarrel with them, no matter how much I may want to. I don't know about you. If I know someone's trying to provoke me, I'm pretty much all about letting it provoke me. My flesh, my flesh knows how to handle that. But to to not let it provoke me, to to take the little bat, the barbs and the jabs they dish at me and just knuckle it under and don't say anything and don't give in to it. Well, that's not natural for me. I'm going to need God's help for that. They need someone to come to them who can and who will gently and patiently teach them and correct them. Now, maybe we're not the people for that. We pray we would be, but if we're not, we pray somebody else would. God sends somebody to them who would be patient and gentle, who would teach them and correct them. Pray they would come to their senses. Isn't that what the prodigal did? Sitting in the, the pig pen? He came to his senses. Gosh, sometimes they need to realize how far they've fallen, how terrible they've made their lives, how much they have brought this. That they need to be delivered, right? Because we can't deliver them. They need Jesus to live and we can't deliver them. They can't even deliver themselves. Only Jesus could do it. So we pray for Jesus to deliver them. We pray God would grant them repentance to life. Because if they're engaged in the sin... What are they going to have to do? They're going to have to change their mind about God and sin. And then renounce that sin and run to Jesus. And there's obviously more passages we could use for whatever's going on in someone's life. But you get the idea. To pray aggressively requires us to put in a little bit of time. To think about them and their situation. To think about God's word and what it may say. And then to work through the passage, to study them in light of God's word, to write these things down and begin to pray in this way. This is head and shoulders above God help. This is head and shoulders above God do something. This is an aggressive way to wage war according to God's word against those who are caught in sin, who are deceived and being destroyed by the devil. Another way, and what I would say is the most aggressive way, 
is to pray the imprecatory psalms. You know, the imprecatory psalms, and I'm probably not saying that word right, are the psalms where the psalmist prays for God to do bad things to his enemies, break out their teeth, break their arms, kill them. Um, Most imprecatory psalms are prayers for God's justice to be poured out immediately on the psalmist's enemies. Now, I don't think... I think these psalms are great to pray so long as we understand what we're doing. Right? We can't pray them for people. Jesus said we're to, to pray for God to bless our physical enemies. But then he went on to say the real enemy, or he didn't go on, Paul went on to say the real enemy isn't flesh and blood anyway. Right? It's, it's spiritual. So the imprecatory psalms are great to pray so long as we're praying them properly. We don't pray them over the people we don't like. We pray them over the spiritual forces at work in the lives of the people we're wanting to see brought to Jesus. And what I mean is, when we see someone drawn away by the world, the flesh, the devil, we can take these aggressive prayers and pray them against the the spiritual enemy seeking to destroy the person or the family or in the situation we're concerned about. Let me show you an example. Turn to Psalm 68. Page 442. And Psalm 68 may not be explicitly a imprecatory psalm, but it kind of is. But it's one I prayed just the other day. So let me read the first few verses, and then we'll talk about really just kind of the first one or two. May God arise. May His enemies be scattered. And may those who hate Him flee from His presence. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As the wax melts before a fire... So the wicked will perish before the Lord. Okay. I pray the Psalms every day, typically. And this was one of the Psalms I prayed just a few weeks ago. So notice, David prays for God to arise and for his enemies to be scattered. He then prays for them to be driven, for those who hate God, to have to flee from his presence. And they're to to flee as though smoke driven, say, by the wind. As wax melts before the fire, the wicked will perish before God. So this is his prayer. May the wicked flee. And if they don't flee, may they perish before the presence of the Lord. Our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, are also God's enemies. In fact, they are primarily God's enemies before they are our enemies. So as we... Pray for people we know are taken captive by the devil. We know are being led astray. We can pray for God to scatter and destroy the fleshly desires pulling them away from Jesus. We we pray for God to scatter and destroy the worldly influences keeping them from Jesus. And we can pray for God to scatter and destroy the demonic powers, deceiving and destroying them apart from Jesus. And listen, make no mistake. The person we're concerned about, the people we're interceding for, we're warring for their souls. All three elements are a part of keeping them from Jesus. Their sinful nature is pushing them away. Their sinful nature is saying, I don't want Jesus and I don't want righteousness. I want this instead. The world is saying, that's a good decision. That's a righteous thing. You do you, bro. 
And then there is the evil spiritual forces which are at work enslaving and deceiving. Right? I mean, just a few we just saw. Well, I've lost my train of thought here. Well, too far away. There. They're taken captive by the snare of the devil. Now, is that just a metaphor for they're in a really bad spot? Or is that literally meant to tell us that they're taken captive by the devil? Well, I think if, if the literal sense of the passage makes sense, you should probably just go with that. So that's not a metaphor. They're really taken captive by the devil. But here's the problem. The devil is one person in one place. He's not omnipresent like God. So how does the devil take all these people captive all these places around the world? He has evil spiritual forces, demons, who do his bidding. So a lot of times when we see in the Bible about the devil takes them captive, it doesn't have to be the devil. It can be demons, and it's the same thing. Then the Bible warns us about unclean spirits. The Bible warns us about spirits of harlotry and whoredom. The Bible warns us about seducing spirits and deceiving spirits and them teaching doctrines of demons. So when they have these ideas in their head that are contrary to to God and His Word, where does that come from? It's demonic. And so we can pray against for God to... Arise and for God to scatter and for God to destroy their fleshly desires. Now, again, the flesh isn't the physical body. It's not the meat on your bones. The flesh is a spiritual thing. It is the spiritual part of us that is rebellious against God. We all need that destroyed in our lives. But those who are far from God need it destroyed immediately so it doesn't kill them. We can pray for God to scatter and destroy those worldly influences. That are affirming them and their sinful decisions. That are telling them Jesus just wants to enslave them and make their lives miserable. And then we can pray for God to scatter and destroy the, the demonic powers. Deceiving and destroying them in their lives. Now, I mean, you don't have to. But for me, when I pray for people I care about. Who I know the devil is working to destroy I would much rather pray for God to scatter and destroy than say, God help them. I would much rather pray aggressively as the Psalms pray. These imprecatory Psalms can teach us how to pray aggressively against the world, the flesh and the devil who are seeking to steal, kill and destroy in the lives of those we know and love. And then finally pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing means to pray at all kinds of times. Have a regular time of prayer. Pray as you drive around town. Pray for the people you see at Walmart. Pray for the people you see at the restaurants. Set alarms to remind you to pray at various points during the day. As you go through the day, there are plenty of opportunities to pray. They don't have to be long prayers. They can be the kind of prayers what Charles Spurgeon referred to as breath prayers. He described breath prayers as short prayers breathed out to God at various times throughout the day. They're not long. They're not drawn out. But they are prayers nonetheless. These breath prayers are are ways for us to not hold our peace, as Isaiah says, and to give God no rest as we intercede for others to pray without ceasing. And we pray without ceasing because the battle is never really over. Even if we see a a victory today, 
A victory today does not ensure a victory tomorrow. Rather, what we can be certain of is the battle that raged today, it will rage tomorrow as well. Satan is ever a roaring lion prowling about seeking someone to devour. And it may be me today and you tomorrow, but be sure the battle always rages. As long as we're alive, the battle rages and we must fight. We pray without ceasing because lives change rapidly. God's word tells us evil can suddenly fall on someone. The reality is this. We don't know when things are going to suddenly take a bad turn for someone or us for that matter. Someone living in sin, they're in rebellion against God. There there will come a day where God will bring them into judgment. And there's no guarantee they have 20 or 30 years. It, It could be tomorrow. We don't know when that is. We don't know when their bad decisions are going to bring about the end of their lives. Suddenly, things can go from good to bad like that. We don't know when. We don't know how. Bad things will happen. And so we must pray without ceasing. And then finally, we pray without ceasing because no one is beyond God's reach. Our hearts may ache over people we know and love. Who have gone into a deep spiral of depravity. Have built multiple strongholds in their minds. Or whose hearts seem unbelievably hard. But no matter how it seems. The reality is this. The Spirit of God can smash the strongest of strongholds. The blood of Christ can cleanse the deepest stain. And the grace of God is greater than any sin. We pray without ceasing. Because no person alive is ever too far gone. It's ever so far God cannot save them or God cannot restore them. And so tonight as we pray, we pray for God to help us realize we're in a spiritual war with spiritual enemies. This should weigh heavily on us always. We pray for God to make us aware of Satan's schemes so we can recognize them when we see them. And we pray for God to enable us to pray aggressively and without ceasing. Let's pray and then we will take prayer requests.